with Rick Vasquez, none other than my man from Percona. Today, we're going to be talking about appropriate workloads for databases in Kubernetes. Rick and I have chatted before at length on this stuff. And instantly, when we talked, it was like, dude, you got to come on a meetup. You got to express some of these concerns that you've been seeing because you're working with some very large companies. And you're seeing people that are trying to do this data on Kubernetes thing. And you've seen some of the downfalls. You've seen some of the success cases. And I think that's kind of our idea to go over that today and look into these ideas more in depth. I know we've also had some awesome questions in Slack happening. And we've had some great questions just being thrown around in the general community. So we're going to try and touch on that. And I have a few questions up my sleeve for you. So we'll try and touch on that too. Now, without further ado, Rick, thank you for coming here and being with us today. I appreciate your time, you taking the time and you, uh, you're enlightening us with some of this information that you've got. Well, I appreciate the invite. This is a, a really exciting time, not just for databases in general, but also for just the wider community uh, when it comes to things like Kubernetes uh, mm. and, and, and abstraction layers for the cloud, right? Every, everything has now made a shift to the cloud and now we're shifting you know, away from what we thought the cloud was into maybe generation two of what the cloud really is and what that means to people mm. and how they interact with infrastructure. Um, and then what that means for, for applications that are stateful, especially persistent systems like databases. Totally. Um, so let's talk a little bit about databases on Kubernetes. Um, I want to let everybody know that's watching. Uh, we do have a deck. It's more just uh, to keep a, a frame of reference. Um, there's, there's not a whole lot of information on the slides. Uh, just keeping us on track. Yeah, we're not. So it's not going to be death by PowerPoint. Today. Yeah, no, 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 no wordy PowerPoints. Uh, not my usual style, right? I usually do really wordy PowerPoints that I have to talk a lot about. Um, but today, it's just uh, keeping us on track. Yeah. So, freeform. who who am I? Uh, let's talk a little bit about uh, this stranger on the internet that's trying to talk to you about databases on Kubernetes. And you know, uh, I'm a I'm a new parent now, so I'm practicing my speech for for my kid. Uh, don't trust anybody on the internet, right? So who, who am I and, and why do I know so much about databases? Yeah, why should databases we trust you? Kubernetes? Um, so I've been around um, in the startup scene in Austin for a while. Uh, after that, uh, I came to Percona as the technical account manager and got some really frontline experience with some of the, the biggest customers in the world that, that we support. So our technical account management uh, practice here at Percona really focuses on kind of the, the top 10% of our customers. Um, and it's big T TAM. Um, so we, we are very technical, um, just kind of throughout Percona, but especially the, the technical account management team here uh, pride themselves on kind of being able to roll their sleeves up and, and you know, play in the mud, uh, so to speak. From there, I actually transitioned to uh, running the, the managed services organization at Percona. Um, the reason that that's important to, to bring up here uh, is we focused a lot whenever we were doing managed services at Percona on the automation aspect and making sure that we could go to the customer wherever they were, where, whatever that meant, um, what cloud provider they were on, what hosting provider they were on, or if they were on their own uh, managed bare metal, um, either internally or with a partner. Um, so you can imagine the level of flexibility that we had to think about whenever we were talking about our automation platform. And a lot of those use cases and a lot of what we learned there is very applicable to the world of Kubernetes whenever you're trying to say, hey, infrastructure doesn't necessarily matter as much anymore, right? We, we need CPU, we need RAM, we need disk, uh, and we need this much of it. Um, we don't really care or need to care or want to care where that underlying infrastructure is. Um, and so I think there's a lot of parallels there um, with what's going on in Kubernetes. And then what do I do now at, at Percona? Um, right now, I'm really focused on uh, enabling not just our services team, which is you know our revenue generation at Percona. We don't sell anything um, as far as software is concerned. 
um, but also on the, the engineering side um, and the customer side in, in the sales aspect to make sure that everybody's on the same page and we're all talking about the same thing. Um, so I get a lot of exposure to uh, the bleeding edge and some of our kind of most strategic customers and accounts. Um, so uh, I don't know if you should trust me after that whole uh, spiel, but maybe. It's incredible. Maybe, you seem like you're a credible guy. Let's hear what maybe you got to say. I think, uh, what I think, you know, you should check out. Um, I, I will say anything that I say in this presentation, you should test before you just kind of take what I say and, and believe it. Um, that's not a legal disclaimer. That's a common sense disclaimer. So, <laughs> I think that's, uh, what, that's what Buddha said too, right? He said, don't yeah, just take my word for this stuff. Go exactly. and try it out yourself. So let's talk a little bit about who Percona is for those who may not know who Percona is. We are completely globally distributed. We are, believe in a fully remote uh, work lifestyle. Uh, that was pre-COVID-19. Um, uh, we were doing this, we've been doing this for about 13 years now uh, as a fully distributed company. We started in the MySQL space really heavy. A lot of our leadership, a lot of our founders um, are from OG, MySQL AB. Um, they went through Sun Microsystems and, and the Oracle acquisition, some of them. Um, and then really we started Percona. Percona stands for performance consultants. Uh, a lot of people, fun fact for the internet, if you didn't know that. Uh, and really we started to expand beyond just our core competency of MySQL um, into, I, I said three, you know, there's four now uh, of the largest open source or source available, right? Caveat for MongoDB uh, databases. And so nobody at Percona in our services organization um, or really anywhere else is just a one trick pony. Uh, a lot of people have their strengths either in MySQL or MongoDB or Postgres. Um, but almost every resource at Percona is expert level um, in at least two of these four technologies. Uh, and so it's a really fun and neat environment to, to work in. It also opens up kind of new horizons um, when we're talking to customers because it's not just a MySQL problem. It's not just a MongoDB problem. It's not just a Postgres problem. It becomes a data persistence problem. Um, and what's the best mm. tool for the job is something that we ask ourselves a lot whenever we're trying to help customers. Um, and so, uh, you know, that's one aspect of our company. Uh, the other thing um, that everybody should know about Percona is we're not just servicing these four databases. We actually contribute um, to the source code um, to some of these and then also have our own distributions for uh, everything except for MariaDB. Um, we kind of leave them off as a true fork. They have a really good uh, you know, North Star that they're following. Uh, we don't want to get in the way of that or, or kind of muddy those waters. But uh, it's important to, to understand that you know, we have enterprise grade software uh, available for pretty much everybody for free as long as you have an internet connection and you can download the code. Um, so all the great things that you get with the community editions um, paired with all the things that are in the paid for editions for all of these databases. And, and that's what we do here at Percona and that's what we really strive for. I talked a little bit about um, the community in, in the last slide, but I really want to kind of hammer the point home. Uh, Percona wouldn't exist with, without a community and without an appetite for truly open source or source available software. Um, that is something that is at the core of our identity and that we want to contribute back to the community as much as possible not just with podcasts or, or you know community events like this but also putting our money where our mouth is and actually putting code out there um, for the open source community and so like i said we build enterprise grade software for everyone to use um, not just the select few or the people that pay us of course the people that pay us uh, also pay for that software to be made so shout out to those customers <laughs> it's like uh the youtube videos when the guys at the end like yeah and thanks to our sponsors on patreon <laughs> we we wouldn't be here without them yeah yeah uh, how do you turn a business of giving away free shit into a business oh yeah <laughs> well we actually do charge for things and it, we we charge for our expertise and, and that's really um where it comes in but you shouldn't have to have expertise to, to run the software that's a a belief of percona that i hope echoes throughout the community hmm. So 
what do we, and I say the, the royal we now, uh, myself and the, the experts at Percona know about databases at web scale? Um, so some of the largest companies in the world, uh, we've gotten the privilege um, and the honor to peek behind those curtains, um, help design some of those systems, and you know some of those systems even run on Percona software. Uh, the three things that I think we need to take away from the web scale environments. I, I'd say these are the 1% of scaled out database environments um, all over the place um, is, is where they sit. Um, kind of similar to um, <laughs> when you talk about money, right? Once you get to the 1%, well, there's a lot of difference between X dollars and a billion dollars. Um, there's a lot of difference and a lot uh, a variety of how companies approach problems once they reach a scale that is truly global and truly available on the entire web. Um, so number one thing, they're always hard. Um, there is no easy answer um, for some of those environments. I don't necessarily think that that's the audience here today, um, but this Kubernetes thing um, definitely came out of some of the solutions to these companies having those problems, you know, board project and other things at Google. Um, I think the second thing I've already talked a little bit about, uh, they don't set the model for how you should scale um, as a business. Once you reach a certain point, um, you essentially diverge from what everybody else is doing, including the others that are at this 1% scale. So the general way to scale shouldn't be thought of, of what's Facebook doing, what's Twitter doing, you know, what's Square do? That's, that's, I think, the wrong way to think about scaling because those companies are unicorns, right? Those companies are doing mm. billions and billions of transactions a second uh, globally. Um, and so what about the guy that's just doing 100,000? That's still super respectable. It's still a really good business. That's still a very high throughput, totally different animal than a billion. Um, and so let's, let's leave it in that frame of reference. Um, and then the third thing that we've definitely seen all across the board is everybody vertically scaled first, then horizontally scaled. It's not an either or. They didn't say, oh, we just want a bunch of really small instances and we're going to design it up front to be that way. Um, they definitely put it on some databases. Those databases got huge. They pushed the limits of what you know their hardware could, could handle. And then they said, wow, we've got to get creative. How do we get around this? Um, a project that I really like to talk about nowadays and that leverages Kubernetes in a really cool way um, and, and a native way is VTest. And so bringing sharding to MySQL, uh, not in the YouTube way, but in a general way that can work for any use case is a really interesting project. And even there, you, you still see the, the need to go to VTest is not just, oh, hey, I'm going to start there. It's, I've already scaled an instance to a point where it doesn't make sense anymore. And now I either need more of those instances or I need to, you know, share some of that responsibility just so that one black box doesn't go down and then my entire, you know, customer base is screwed. Um, or doesn't have availability, can't persist anything, can't read anything out of the database. You just depend on your caching layer, right? Um, and so I think those three things, um, as long as we, as a group, um, keep those in mind with what I'm talking about kind of moving forward, it, it'll set the tone instead of saying, hey, how do you scale like Facebook or uh, Google with Kubernetes and databases? I, we're talking about the, the general use case um, that actually scales before you get into really special secret sauce. So that gets us to uh, another topic that I, is near and dear to my heart because I hear this a lot, uh, especially with prospective customers. Um, hey, you know, we're gonna move to the cloud, but we don't really wanna buy into CloudX's uh, methodology. Um, so we're gonna do everything on Kubernetes. Um, and so they move all of their VM workloads into containers, and then they try and orchestrate those containers in Kubernetes, which sounds great. Um, and it definitely does have a mentality shift. Now, now your company or your developers can focus on doing things the Kubernetes way. And you know, it, it allows for a lot more uh, technical flow, so to speak. 
Um, just like cash flow, right? When you refinance, uh, typically it's get more cash flow. So your monthly cash in is higher than your monthly cash out. Um, so similar, uh, I think, concept with Kubernetes. Whenever you get to refinance um, some of your architectural or technical debt, um, you get to go and do it in Kubernetes, and now you can do new and wonderful things in, in perhaps a faster and you know cheaper way. Uh, but it still doesn't pay that debt back. Right? Eventually, um, you're going to have to to come to terms um, with the payment plan. And this so was something that you told me when we talked that was just like, wow, that's hitting the nail on the head. How you're refinancing when you move to Kubernetes, you're not wiping out your debt. Exactly. And a lot of people think it's an, oh, hey, it's a new lease on life. I can do so much more. And you can't until you can't, right? So you still got um, something to deal with. And now maybe does it put those cycles further and further out? Maybe. Um, I don't know what your particular use case or scenario is, but in a lot of cases, um, the, you know, selling Kubernetes as a way to go, especially with databases, um, isn't a silver bullet or a gold bullet or platinum bullet or whatever bullet. Um, it's, it's just a different way of thinking about the world. Um, and sure, that could increase velocity um, to a certain point. And that's kind of the, the point that I want to make with, with this slide. Um, and so what do you use Kubernetes for? Um, there's two things that I think really make a lot of sense and that we're seeing uh, a lot of prevalence in. Um, one is microservices. So not every single database needs to be one honking big database with 190 schemas or a thousand schemas or 5,000 schemas. Or, you know, we've, we've got customers with nearly a million schemas um, in some of their databases. And so that one database having all of those schemas, you know, that's not necessarily attractive to anybody besides the people running the database. So for your infrastructure team, maybe awesome, right? They only have to worry about one set of binaries running. But from a developer team, you know, how do you, you talk about noisy neighbor problems, right? With just VMs in the cloud, talk about noisy neighbors and schemas, right? What if one of the other application teams that you have nothing to do with is hammering this database? Well, you're going to suffer because of that, because your schema is on that database. So what is a really appropriate use um, for Kubernetes? Hey, automating a way so that your infrastructure team doesn't hate you for spinning up 10,000 databases um, and still getting what you need from a persistence layer, um, being able to store data in a performant way that makes a lot of sense. Um, so microservices leveraging Kubernetes, um, not just for the applications, but also for the databases, uh, makes a whole lot of sense because it, it becomes a, a way to think about the world instead of, and you know, it works with the applications, instead of just saying, hey, we're just gonna do this because it's the, the way that it's always done and because Team X dictates how that's done. Um, so the second thing is this unified abstraction layer. Um, and so what do I mean by that? Uh, what I really mean by that is uh, having the ability to use any infrastructure, um, in a truly, I don't care what it is way, uh, is what Kubernetes and databases, right, work really well together to do. If you don't need something on, you know, GCP or AWS or Azure or, you know, VPS.net or any of the DigitalOcean, any of the, the cloud providers, or in your bare metal environment, you just need a database and you need it to work kind of near where your application is and you don't really care how that is. And you know that the general size of that database is going to be X, Y, and Z um, for those dimensions. That's a really, really amazing use case for Kubernetes. Or even if that is kind of amorphic uh, a little bit, you know, you need to scale up, scale down. Um, it may need more resources around Black Friday if you're a retailer, and then less resources the rest of the time. Um, those types of things, and then thinking about that in a way that isn't specific to any one cloud provider, but is specific to kind of the Kubernetes way of thinking, is an ideal use case for databases. Um, I know that one thing that doesn't really resonate here is microservices. I tend to think of those as not really huge data sets. 
um, when I'm talking about a unified abstraction layer, I don't really talk about um, what that data footprint or data size um, is. And it's mostly irrelevant if you do it the Kubernetes way, right? If you approach the problem of putting databases on an abstraction layer, um, you should be mindful that you're doing that in a way that needs to be elastic, both vertically and horizontally, um, to make sense for the system that you're using, in this case, Kubernetes. And that kind of brings me to kind of controversial point number one. Um, I don't really care what database you're running in Kubernetes. If you're, <laughs> if you're doing it probably more than 600 gigs um, in a single instance, you should think about doing it a little bit differently unless you have some really special hardware underneath that abstraction. Um, if we're talking about in general, what's available, um, you know, anywhere from one gig to five gig uh, network connectivity between nodes um, in a highly available system that's self-healing, it's really important that that self-healing aspect gets done in a reasonable amount of time so that you don't think that things are constantly broken or so you don't have to write really custom, unique checks to each one of these databases to fit into Kubernetes um, or this abstraction layer. What you really want is for the two to work harmoniously together and the database does the things that the database is supposed to do and Kubernetes does what it's supposed to do, provision uh, applications and, and have that hardware available to it, however it needs to be. And so once you get to kind of the 600 gig plus range, um, that starts to be a pretty good limitation um, for a decent amount of time to have your data recovered um, in a failure, right? What happens when the, the underlying disk for your PVC fails, right? Or um, th there's still a failure chance out there. So you can't always depend on your abstracted disk um, to be available. Sometimes you're going to have to spin up new nodes, and that means you're going to have to do state transfer of some type um, to those, right? Adding a new shard in MongoDB, adding a new uh, member to the cluster in a Percona Extra DB cluster, um, adding a new uh, replica in Postgres. All of these things, um, regardless of which technology you're using, are really starting to be dependent on network throughput um, to be able to do the things the way the database does them. Now, that is not to say that you can't get really clever and smart and do everything yourself. Um, and so if you can ensure that the, the data layer will be you know, 100% available or you have some way to recover um, from that using some fancy snapshots or things like that, I think those things are, are really great from an approach. Um, they should be thought of outside of Kubernetes though because you're really starting to play with the underlying infrastructure itself. Um, instead of the database or just the, the abstracted application that's running on whatever hardware. Um, so, well, I think that's interesting how you're talking about 600 gigs is kind of the red line around that area. That's where you're starting to see it's like uh, it fails or it takes too long. And what ha what happened? Yeah, what happens when you have something in a degraded state for over an hour? What happens if it takes seven hours? What happens if it takes 19 hours? That, those are the questions. Well, I would say that if it's in a degraded state for 19 hours, that's a failure. That's not a degraded state. Um, and it, it, how, how self-healing is it um, if it goes on forever, right? Uh, if, it, you know, if, if you have 20 terabytes on a one gig network connection and you need to, to do a state transfer or you know, seed a new node and that takes 15 days. Is that, is that appropriate? Are you, is this Kubernetes working the right way? I don't, I think the answer is, is no. Um, and because if, if you can't tell whether or not it's running and running well, um, that's kind of the whole point of Kubernetes and being able to just say, oh, this doesn't look right. We'll just wipe it clean and start from scratch. At what point does that logic become too pervasive and too specific um, to the operator uh, or right, whatever you're doing in Kubernetes to make to combat the usefulness of it, um, right? At that point, why wouldn't you just have a guy control a VM or control uh, you know, everything about that infrastructure and say, oh, hey, 
this is what's happening and we're just going to downtime alerting and we're just going to like not check on it for 10 days. That doesn't really make sense in Kubernetes, right? You don't want to not check on something for, for you just want to know that it's going to be working and in a working state um, as often as possible. Um, and so that, you know, pod rescheduling, all those type of things that are intrinsic to, to Kubernetes, um, that becomes really difficult when you have large data sets. And, you know, data really starts to become your anchor. So the bigger your anchor is, the harder it is going to be to, to pull up, but it's also going to keep you in steady seats, right? Or, or it, it steady seats or in ragers um, <laughs> where you know, everything's going crazy, but your boat's not moving, right? Because you've got so much data uh, holding you in. And so th that I think it's something to think about. Um, like I said, there are a lot of, you know, my data especially, um, starting to think about these problems in a very Kubernetes-centric way, um, where I think once this becomes a solved problem for the ecosystem, that's really where you're going to see leaps and bounds of adoption in, in the Kubernetes, where you don't have to necessarily be at, at a point where you need to horizontally scale and you, you're doing that automatically with Kubernetes. Or, right, you have a bunch of smaller workloads that, that you want distributed in that microservices type thing. Um, I think that's where we're really going to see adoption start to, to really get driven in. Uh, CrunchyData is doing some really cool stuff here. Um, and I, I would posit that it's outside the realm of what an operator should be doing, right? You should use Kubernetes native everything all the time. If you have to do something custom, um, guess what? Now you're married to that operator where you shouldn't necessarily be married to, to that operator or that vendor. It should just be the way that it works. And so I've got some notes here. I think um, the ideal customer from Percona's perspective who, who wants to use Kubernetes for um, their database environment is somebody who's deploying microservices across multiple infrastructures, whether that's public or private clouds um, or providers. And then the ideal architecture for us, um, whenever somebody's committing to our operators, we'd like to see that their company is really making a full commitment to Kubernetes. And so they're not doing direct integrations with cloud specific resources. Um, so no Lambda and Kinesis type stuff, but they're using, you know, Kube Control and StreamZ and, you know, generally available things um, in the market that aren't marrying them to one cloud provider. That's really where we see Kubernetes shine the most because what happens if you're using all those things and you want to change the underlying infrastructure. Well, now you've kind of violated the core tenant that, that you were trying to be obsessed. Why, why not just use VMs on that cloud provider if you're going to, if you're going to marry them like that? It's kind of, I think, the argument there. So let's talk about what you should not use databases on Kubernetes for. Um, extremely throughput sensitive applications. Um, I, I would say this is vertically scaled out. Um, so if you just have a three node cluster uh, of any database that, that you're running in Kubernetes and you want the self-healing and backups and all the automation that comes with an operator. Um, why are you doing that in Kubernetes? Uh, <laughs> kind of the question that I would ask is, uh, if you're not managing a whole lot of stuff, write some scripts and put it in VMs or bare metal if you're really, really sensitive about throughput. Um, Kubernetes isn't performance first, um, but that's not really its core tenant. It's really to drive the ability to, to kind of obfuscate the, the general underlying infrastructure and, and use containers in a way that make a lot of sense and orchestrate that. Um, so nowhere in there does it say talking about like the best, you know, latency ever on every, you know, aspect of the hardware and the application. Um, so I would say, you know, throughput sensitive applications, probably not a great thing. High performance distributed applications, lots of cross traffic, um, things that require, you know, 40 gig NICs between boxes, uh, probably not a great use case for Kubernetes, unless your Kubernetes cluster is guaranteed 40 gig everywhere, um, which, you know, some people have really sophisticated setups and that's great. You can do that if, if you have those guarantees from your infrastructure partner whether that's a cloud or right internal partners. Um, and then obviously uh, you know, true cluster computing um, where, where you're kind of, it's a different type of, of obfuscation um, <laughs> with clustered computing than it is with Kubernetes, which is just generally available 
infrastructure, right? Generally available CPU is different than all of these CPUs need to work together all the time. Mm. Um, and so probably not a great use case um, to, to put into Kubernetes. Well, that was something that when we spoke last time, I remember you saying this idea of, hey, yeah, the, the meetups that you had listened to prior were awesome, but the holistic view of when to use Kubernetes, when to not, why would you want to, why would you not want to? I think we all understand the benefits, right? And there it is. There, there it is. <laughs> I have not seen these slides yet. So just to let everyone know <laughs> the why, give us the why. Yeah, but this is the, this is the best question that you can ask yourself. I want to, I want to move, um, or my boss or, you know, person X wants to move our database into Kubernetes. This is probably the first and only question that you'll need to ask to, to get the real answer, whether or not you should proceed. Why? Why do you want to do that? Um, if, if the answer is, oh, you know, it's going to abolish technical debt. Well, we've already talked about that a little bit. You know, whether you believe me or not um, is, is a different story. But it doesn't abolish, but it's not the point of Kubernetes, right? It's, it doesn't abolish technical debt. Maybe it'll allow you to do a few more things um, in a different way, uh, but it definitely doesn't address the, the issue of technical debt. Mm. Um, why? If the answer is, oh, because everything else is in Kubernetes. Not a great answer, right? Especially when you're talking about persistent systems um, at scale. Or I would say, you know, there's an argument for, for the why um, everything else is in Kubernetes. Well, yeah, if your database is tiny and there's not a whole lot of throughput there, um, you know, why not uh, put it in Kubernetes? But let's say you've got an established um, ecosystem, you've got, you know, pretty decent throughput, you've scaled out uh, pretty sizably. Why would you move that workload, right? Just point everything to it um, instead of having to move that into a, a different plane that isn't necessarily designed for databases first, right? S stateless applications first, awesome. Put them all in Kubernetes. Um, stateful applications, that's kind of an afterthought, right? We're, we're starting to see a lot of work be done there because it was one of the, the major downfalls early on. Um, and now, you know, we're seeing that improvement in the ecosystem, but we're still not there yet to where, um, you know, I would be recommending every single new database deployment needs to be in Kubernetes. Mm. Uh, and until we're there, um, I think this, this question of why um, and the answer of, well, everything else is in Kubernetes. Those two things aren't, uh, th those don't jive with each other. That's not something that, just because everything else is in Kubernetes doesn't mean your database needs And to just out of curiosity, what do you think is missing as far as why we're not there yet? So I think, you know, like I said, OpenEBS and, and Portworks and a few, you know, Robin.io and, and a few other players are really focusing in on what's preventing kind of large persistent data volumes and Kubernetes workloads. Um, I still think that there's, um, I, I get into this a little bit later, but we'll probably just skip over that slide. Uh, I get into this a little bit later. Okay, great. Now we've solved the problem of the, you know, state transfer, snapshotting native in the kind of a Kubernetes way. And so now, okay, all that's gone and, and you know, there's no cap on you know, how much data you can put in Kubernetes on a single node. And that's, that's all fine and good. Now, what happens when that, you know, pod gets rescheduled or when, you know, something crashes and then it spins up a new one? Well, every single one of these persistent systems, it isn't just the data on disk and, and the performance of that data on disk, whether it's low latency, high throughput, whatever it is. That profile, one problem. Second problem is, okay, now you have to load that all into memory and do something with it. So when you lose, a 600 gig node and you have 250 gigs of, in MySQL's case, buffer pool, what now, right? Now you've got a bunch of cold data. You don't, you have to either read it in with some custom scripts and some automation to make sure that your performance profiles what you expect whenever another application connects to that database. Mm -hmm. um, and is that gonna be the same as the previous primary, right? Before the failure, before the rescheduling. Um, and that, you know, that holds true for, for Mongo, right? With its wired tiger cache. Um, 
and, and it holds true for Postgres um, and its cache. And I don't want to talk about you know some of the other databases, but a lot of the in-memory portion of these databases is still a big question mark of how do we recover that, right? And some of that, I think, comes from the adoption level in Kubernetes hasn't gotten high enough to be on the radar for the core development teams for some of these upstream projects, right? If everybody was running on Kubernetes and it was a big problem that your primary changed every, you know, however often, um, you know, as, as little as every 10 minutes to, at, you know, once a day, let's, let's call it. Well, now we've got a problem of, we need to make sure that we maintain a consistent level of performance, regardless of what primary is doing what. Um, and that really hasn't been a, an issue that has risen to the top because failovers are the last case scenario, right? They either happen because something blew up and you didn't want it to, or you know because you planned it and you probably already warmed up the buffer pool or the cache or anything on the candidate that you're failing over to. Now, in the Kubernetes world, you don't get control of that, right? Stuff just happens and it's good and it's all stable and it's highly available intrinsically, at least if your operator's any good. And how do you deal with the after effects of that? I think that's something that still to be determined. Yeah. Right. And, and so how are, are we going to, you know, get to that point of maturity? I think uh, part of it is accessibility and openness. Um, and so open EBS is going to do awesome things um, when that adoption really starts to happen because more people are going to be able to have it accessible to them. Right, they're going to have this enterprise level of interacting with a persistent, like a, a broad disk, um, than is available today. Right, you just have PVCs, and you just hope that whatever you ask for is there. <laughs> totally. And if it isn't, oh, tough. Right. Hopefully, the database has some way to like recover that, um, like with a state transfer or something. And and so I think first part. And then we'll see kind of more adoption there. And then we'll start running into this other problem that keeps the wary, you know, mission critical, super, you know, companies that think that they have to run on bare metal still um, haven't even gone to VMs. I think we'll see a lot of those companies actually just leapfrog VMs and go straight into Kubernetes once they feel it's safe. Interesting. Um, and so I, I don't think we're too far off, right? It's definitely far off but it's not too far off to, to not talk about um i think 2022 is going to be a really cool year for kubernetes um especially when we're talking about databases so dean is mentioning in the chat that one can make the argument that the majority of use cases for businesses and organizations are well within the capabilities of kubernetes I'm wondering what your thoughts on that are. I appreciate the the chatter, Dean. And I know you had a question in our Slack too that we were going to try and touch on uh, in a moment here. I would say I agree if they think about it in the Kubernetes way. A lot of people just want to think about it in the same way that they're doing it. And they want to use Kubernetes as a whatever is a service, right? They just start thinking of, of Kubernetes as, oh, now I have my own internal application as a service or a database as a service or whatever as a service. And that's not what Kubernetes is. Um, and so until you start thinking about it in the Kubernetes way, which is a real struggle, right? It's a cultural problem at, at a lot of these companies. Does that, do you think that answers that? That sounds good to me. We'll see, I'll tell you if he, if he says no, he wants more information. <laughs> <laughs> he says, yeah, it's good. Right on. I'll let you keep cracking with the slides. Yeah, so talking about Kubernetes and database as a service, um, Perfect segment. slide is intentionally blank. What do these two things have in common? Well, absolutely nothing, right? They're not the same thing. They're, they're not really to be completed with one another. Um, running a database uh, with an operator in Kubernetes is not a database as a service. Um, you, can, you can talk about however you want uh, about databases as a service, but that's <laughs> it. They're two very different things. One is a database running in a containerized way with some automation around it. And then one is a service that you provide either internally or you know, a vendor provides to you that a database endpoint will be available. So Kubernetes doesn't try 
to just make a database endpoint available, right? It does a lot more than that. So I would say, um, you know, with a DVAS, you get all the great things and, and people look at the feature comparison of what you get when you buy a DVAS. And, and it's like, oh man, that's a lot like what I can get with a Kubernetes and a, and a really spiffy operator. And yeah, some of that's true, but again, it's the lens at which you look at your deployment from. Are, are you looking that at, at, are you looking at your deployment as something that just needs to be highly available and self-healing and everything else that, that's great that comes with Kubernetes and Kubernetes operators? Or are you looking at it as a generally available endpoint that promises functionality X? Um, and that's really what DBAS is. Um, you know, a lot of them share some, some core ideologies where, you know, if you have to log into a container in, in a database deployment in Kubernetes, right, don't put it in Kubernetes. Don't, just don't do it. Um, so that, you know, you can't log into anything that's offered as a DBAS and their servers. Now, the underlying deployment methodology for um, some of these databases and services, especially SkySQL with MariaDB's offering, they're Kubernetes driven. Um, and it's really cool to see that kind of adoption. But, you know, I know, and so do many other people that, you know, Cloud SQL or RDS from, from AWS, those are all running on VM infrastructure. Um, they have a pretty sophisticated orchestration platform that they leverage. And then Azure kind of is doing things totally different from anyone else, where they're so confident in their ability for, for VMs and, and kind of having a proxy out front that you only have to buy one node to have a highly available multi-region uh, you know, database, uh, which sounds insane to me. And then you read the fine print and they're using regional persistence um, uh, across uh, you know, availability zones so that, hey, as long as we can get a VM spun up fast enough for people not to notice, that's good enough. Well, from a Kubernetes perspective, that's that's not really how it approaches uh, <laughs> the problem. Right? Each one of these are independent; they're not replicated storage solutions. Um, every PVC that you have is is you know belongs to a container, um, doesn't belong to multiple containers, and so having that highly available setup is more of an architectural decision um, that you make with the operator and how it works than it is. Oh, hey. You know, it's just highly available. I just told three different companies that approach that problem three different ways. And that's DBAS, right? The operator, it's highly available the way that the database wants to be highly available. It heals the way the database wants to heal. Uh, and not, right, some other way, right? Some, you know, hacky way where I control the infrastructure. I control the SAN so I can move, you know, this data however which way. How do I do that without control of the SAN? And I think that's the, the question that Kubernetes answers. And maybe this is a good segue into one of the other questions that was being thrown around in Slack about the newer data systems like Yugabyte and CockroachDB that are being built in this cloud native way, but you also have all of the old stuff. So like, uh, and, and this was from Admit, he's saying data is so sticky where is the calculation someone would go through or what is the calculus to go through before you say, I'm going to go to a cloud native product versus trying to make their existing system work out in this hacky way that you speak of? So it's, it's really interesting. I think there's two different answers depending on if you're net new, right? Or if you're bringing your data with you in some way, shape or form. Um, I think there's a lot more, and, and let's just coin these cloud native databases as NoSQL, right? You know, NoSQL was not only SQL, mm. and then it turned out to just be a bunch of document databases. And, <laughs> and then, uh, you know, you've got your traditional, you know, so to speak, RDBMS, um, relational databases, which aren't at all relational anymore, right? They, they've all kind of come to, to the modern age. And then you've got these new SQL, which is, Really, I think what the NoSQL movement was, was trying to, to bring to the table with not only SQL, um, but it's just a new way of thinking about how you interact and how you store data. Um, and those all come with caveats. Um, so having a really awesome distributed SQL system like Cockroach, that comes with trade-offs. Um, it, it 
right? All that data isn't available in a single node. Um, some people really like having all the data available in a single node. Uh, now, I think the decision to move from one technology to another um, just on the basis of them being cloud native is kind of where I want to focus this is probably a bit silly um, unless your entire company has kind of bought into that mantra, right? And I mean entire company. It can't just be your engineering organization. It has to be everyone. Um, you know, if, if sales doesn't get it, like they're going to be selling the same thing as you used to have, um, even though you've enabled so much more, right? You've enabled this agility. Mm -hmm. You've enabled kind of a cloud native footprint. Um, so I, I think there's no real answer for like what calculus or what calculations you need to do before you, you migrate to kind of one of these new SQL solutions other than lots and lots of testing. <laughs> lots and lots of testing um, as production workload-like as possible. And then uh, aligning that with what your product management or right your your overall corporate strategy is you know some people may want to sacrifice um you know something out of column x to gain something out of column y mm -hmm. and i think it really is dependent on some of that from a business use case perspective but then we also live in the age of you know mysql has x api the x dev api and you can interact with it pretty much the same way that you can interact with mongodb um Postgres has now had binary JSON as a column type for years, um, which kind of used to, to be the, the claim to thing um, for, for MongoDB. And so how, how are these old traditional databases responding to some of these modernization or kind of new way to attack the same problem um, with some of these newer databases? And I think it really is workload dependent. Um, and then business requirement dependent. Some things allow you to do uh, what you couldn't with other systems. And that's true just in, in the traditional right world of Maria, Mongo, Postgres, MySQL. We have a lot of people who use MySQL in a way that they probably shouldn't. They should leverage Postgres and some of the, the advantages that you get from an analytics workload perspective with Postgres. You know, you're not gonna have a great time single-threaded MySQL doing a bunch of really big you know, data warehouse stuff, unless you've done some really special things mm -hmm. um, to either your application layer or the way that you interact with um, MySQL, where in Postgres, there's tons of stuff out there that makes it a data cube, right? So well, this like, is, you've got green plum, you've got like all kinds of stuff. Yeah, and this is something, I mean, I wanna bring in this other question that Dean had in, in the community Slack which I've been trying, Dean, to figure out a way to put this into as few words as possible, but it's quite a lengthy one. It's really this idea of lift, in, lift and shift. And last week we had uh, Joseph and Mike talking about, like, don't just lift and shift, like make it better, make it more valuable when you lift and shift. And so I think this could be a, a good segue into the whole idea of how lift and shift as dean says sometimes or most of the time in his his view it's this lift and shift doesn't work because things start to get hairy when you're needing data from the old paradigms and you're trying to bring it onto the new paradigms the new paradigms are are resting or they're they're leaning on these old paradigms and then you realize oh man we we really done ourselves in on this one so dean you can tell us if that was a good summary of the question at hand, and if not, uh, I will try to rephrase. It's a fun. It's a fun thing. So I think there's, for me, there's two real ways that people think about lifting and shifting that are hilariously wrong, right? So I'm moving workload X um, to cloud provider Y from you know cloud provider Z, and they don't benchmark the just like the basic stuff of like. CPU frequency is different <laughs> on those instance types. I mean, we can get as simple as that, but then when you're talking about, okay, one thing is, well, hey, the hardware is completely different. Let's say we control for that and you're deploying your Kubernetes cluster on the same infrastructure, the same exact infrastructure, 
that um, your VMs or your bare metal workload is on, and you just want to lift and shift that into Kubernetes. Well, you're not going to have a good time doing that either, um, because typically the way that you're doing backups, the way that you think about um, running the database, the way that you think about maintaining the database, if you try and do that in containers, you're doing it wrong, right? You can't log, you know, you can, can log in the containers, you shouldn't log in the containers. Um, especially when, when they're running like this, you should have a way to, to handle configuration that isn't, oh, hey, I'm gonna log in and edit, you know, the my.cnf or, you know, the mongod.com. <laughs> like that, that's not appropriate whenever you're using kind of a, a lift and shift mentality to a Kubernetes workload. And I think that's something that gets lost in translation a lot. They're like, oh, hey, same hardware, it's gonna perform, you know, about the same. There may be some networking weirdness, but, you know, we get all these great things from Kubernetes um, just from moving the application there. And it's like, no, you don't. You get things in a Kubernetes way, right? You get them in this cloud native kind of first way of thinking instead of however the hell you were doing, right? Because we've seen a lot of however the hell you were doing it <laughs> at my time at Bergona. And it's kind of remarkable how many bad ways people can think about doing things. <laughs> and so uh, we, have, we have this one, um, it, it, it's a report that we generate for our managed services customers and it's called the business continuity review. And we, you know, we score it A through F, you know, like grade school. And we haven't ever had somebody score higher than a C on their way mm. into Percona. And, you know, we've had some pretty sophisticated companies that had, you know, backup strategies in place. And, you know, when you start to look at things um, from a, like a very holistic view of like, how does this affect your business, right? What does business continuity mean for your business? Those types of, of questions are, are really the same questions that you should ask yourself whenever you're moving into Kubernetes. Like, what are you gaining here? And and how does that play into what your business objectives are? Um, and that mentality isn't lift and shift, right? That's mm -hmm. a that's a fundamental change to your organization. I am changing for the better, right? And and I think this plays into don't just lift and shift, make it better. Yeah. You don't have to make it better by you know changing the way the application interacts with. You can make it better simply by saying we're going to make the conscious decision to not do what we've done, right? <laughs> Uh, another really funny thing that we see people want to do all the time is, you know, oh, hey, we want to move into Kubernetes and then we want to use a totally different replication technology and a different version. And it's like, no, <laughs> like, don't, don't do that, right? Because then you have no idea what, what's causing the problem. Yeah, as they say in Spanish, poco a poco. Yeah. <laughs> so I want to get to a question that um, Brian had in the Slack. And he was talking about, for simple config databases, is it typically better to run an independent instance for each component or to centralize a few different databases in a single instance? So I believe um, that having the, leveraging Kubernetes, the Kubernetes way with databases, you would probably want everything as their own component. They can scale individually. They can, you know, it's all of the great things that you would expect from a container orchestration platform, as long as you've got kind of the logic to do it the Kubernetes way. Um, if you're not going to do it the Kubernetes way, if you're going to do this shoehorn lift and shift, so keep it centralized, right? Please. Um, because <clears throat> unless you have intimate knowledge of each component and how they work together, uh, that troubleshooting is going to be a pretty big burden on your organization. Whereas if all of these things just kind of run and as long as they're available and in some, you know, short order, right. They have 30 minute outage, but eventually it comes back in the same state that it was, we last saw it, those types of things. Great. Put them all independent, scale them all independent, do all the great things that Kubernetes enables you to do with those things. Um, if not, don't, please don't. <laughs> for your sake, not for mine. So let's go to that that last question that you said. I mean, it is 
hitting the top of the hour, but there was that one last question that you wanted to, I know some people have to drop. If you have to drop, we're going to be putting this on YouTube and in podcast land. So you can go and listen to these last minutes that you miss. Otherwise, can we go to that, that question that you wanted to hit and we'll have it as our, our question to wrap up the session. And uh, I think we may need to have a session two with you at some point because there's all kinds of goodness that's happening here. Oh, what? Oh, this, this question. This is great. Yeah, this is, this is great. Um, so I, I remember when we were first talking about this, this is, this is an interesting phenomenon of, of the nowadays. Um, I think it's, you know, it started with, you know, big query and snowflake where, you know, the big warning was like, Hey, you know, it's, how much data you're crunching for how long and that's you know you just pay for the query well what happens when you have that you don't have to pay for the licenses you just have a system that you can just throw data in and then you run a query and poof it just auto scales infrastructure and does a bunch of crazy stuff and then all of a sudden you have a forty thousand dollar query uh, <laughs> and so th this is a real thing yeah for a bit of background for people when we were talking about this i can't remember where i heard it but somebody it was either in a podcast that i heard it in or somebody was telling me about and i want to say that it was spotify somebody at spotify did some kind of you know forty thousand dollar join or query or something and and then they got a knock on their door from some of the higher ups like what did you just do uh because that took a lot that was an expensive query yeah yeah, and so I think this is where developer enablement, which is one of the core missions of, of Kubernetes, right? Being able to develop your apps, release them, deploy them, do it the same way as the dev environment is production. You know, all of that plays into what happens when you like, oh, hey, you know, I'm doing this thing and it's really great. And my dev environment looks exactly and feels exactly and interacts exactly like production. And then you just go run it in production and production has a bunch of auto scalability built in and all these great things that are in the new normal, right? The, the new age of today, if I was starting a company, you know, I, I would look heavily into to doing Kubernetes for a lot of things. And taking that to kind of the extreme where your developers have now been enabled to do things that have pretty substantial financial impacts because more and more in, in the cloud native world, um, IT still owns the infrastructure budget or right, the CIO still owns the infrastructure budget in, in many cases, but now they just treat everybody like an internal customer. And so what are they going to do to make customer certain, right? How is the CIO going to interact with the CTO to make sure they're still buds at the end of the day and they can have a beer together. And the way that they do that is enabling them to just do it with automation within bounds. And I think this is a, a pretty big cultural shift that needs to happen as well. Um, with this kind of new normal, you, you need to bake in sane limitations or kind of upfront being like, are you sure? Um, and then ask again, are you really, really sure uh, that, that you want to do this? Uh, I, I, there's simple, safe, things in MySQL, um, you know, that prevent you from doing big joins. And, and I think part of this was back in the day, people were just running rampant, running huge joins that were going to scan, you know, hundreds of millions of rows. Uh, and that can bog down the system pretty bad, especially when you're talking about MySQL. So those types of fail-safes, they're no longer going to be vendor-driven, uh, right? They're going to be organizationally-driven. And, and that's a shift that I think that you know, we need to start thinking about, mm. especially with databases like Kubernetes. Wise words from my man, Rick. I really appreciate you sitting down with us, talking to us about all of this and sharing your wisdom. As always, it's been a pleasure to talk with you. I really want to say thanks for everybody for sticking around. I will... Um, send you out. If you are subscribed to the email newsletter, you'll get a follow-up email of this with all the links once I put them online. If you're in Slack, then jump on. You'll see it when it comes out. If not, I'm throwing that in the 
uh, chat real fast again. So if you want to jump in Slack, come and talk to us. And if you got a bone to pick with Rick, he's there. Or if you just want to concur on some of these, <laughs> he's active. He'll chat with you. And really, it's, it's awesome to see this, Rick. I really want to thank you for taking the time and talking to us. Yeah, just one more blurb. Um, if you like what you heard today and you want to hear more really in-depth conversations, database-specific, especially in the open source community, we've got a Percona Live online event um, mm. since we're not doing anything in person anymore. Yeah. And that's October 20th or 21st. And you can go to percona.com slash live to sign up and get the latest scoop on that. Yeah, I'll put that all in the show notes too if anyone is listening in the future. And I will also throw that into the email follow-up. So we will see you all later. Thanks again, Rick. Thanks everybody for joining us. Have a great day. Cheers.